Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. stuff we don't need and uh, we were going through an electronics bucket and uh, this dinosaur was in it and it has red eyes it's a like brachiosaurus or a brontosaurus or one of it's a long neck it's a long neck it's a it's a veggie veggie sore Vegisaurus, as they say on it's, Jurassic yeah. Park. It's a Vegisaurus. But he has not bright red eyes. So we, we, we sang a song when we were setting up called Demon Dinosaur. It's a demon dinosaur, demon dinosaur, demon dinosaur, demon dinosaur, demon dinosaur, demon dinosaur. Why are demons dinosaurs and why are dinosaurs always demons? That sounds nothing like the nope. song we were singing earlier. See, like, it just, we, you can't make this shit up, people. We make it up. Improvisation. <laughs> Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, hope you're all doing okay. Um, the world's crazy. So we're going to read fiction to you. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm telling people, like, why should we listen to your podcast? Well, because it, we don't talk about the real world. So keeping in terms of that, you wanted to play a game today, didn't you? Yes, so we're going to tell you a story. We're going to write our own story, but we don't know what it's going to be about. And the story <laughs> goes like this. God, I'm so scared. Once there was a little dinosaur who ate everything. They I'm jumped. Making it gender neutral. They jumped uh, down into a hole that was covered with moss. It was comfy and soft and green. <laughs> it wasn't tasty. <laughs> Dinner is spoiled. <laughs> the dinosaur was disappointed and decided to go home the end <laughs> I don't know thank you for coming to campfire classics <laughs> where we tell garbage stories About and the world makes no sense my dinosaur is just like in my head now it's it's all your fault young one happy happy dinosaur happy I'm happy gonna day post, I'm gonna post a uh, picture of this this little miniature dinosaur we have found great um on the website so check it out campfireclassicspodcast.com um or become a patron and you can see it there um you don't have to hold the dinosaur up to the microphone to take a picture of it people can't hear it i'm i'm, I'm literally <laughs> holding it up to the microphone right now so you can say hello um that's where i am mentally um hello campfire classics fans <laughs> This might be our weirdest opener yet. My name's Alan. <laughs> His name's Alan? I'm a dinosaur. And my name's Alan. And I eat moss. But it's not very good. 
clearly. But sometimes it's not very tasty, so I go home disappointed. Hey, you should read me a story so I don't go home disappointed. Okay, Alan, we'll read you a story. Wow, Alan, you sound a lot like Mickey Mouse. At least <laughs> I don't know in, what you sound in like. In my head, you do. Well. Yep, that's me. <laughs> Alan is going to listen to our story. If you're still here with us, um, here at Campfire Classics, we read stories out loud. Well, we try to. We try to. And that's to. what we're going to do. What uh, I know you said today is kind of a longer story. Yeah, today's story is by an author named Edith Nesbitt. Uh, like this, Evelyn Nesbitt? Um, same last name, okay. but no, completely different people. I, I only know who Evelyn Nesbitt is is because I'm a musical theater nerd, <laughs> and I just immediately went to, and now I'm the girl on the swings. <laughs> Whee! No, same last name, completely different human beings. Um, although, if you, uh, if you go to Wikipedia, if you go to Edith Nesbitt's Wikipedia page, there is a disambiguation thing that says, if you are looking for the American performer Evelyn Nesbitt, Don't be here. go to this page. <laughs> Don't be here. <laughs> so no, Edith Nesbitt. Um, Edith Nesbitt actually first came to my attention because my brother, Craig, recommended we check out a book by her called uh, Five Children and It. Ew. It is one of her children's stories. And It? It. Um, that I believe is about, like, five kids who um, go to live out in the country. Like, they leave okay. London and go live out in the country, and they find a little sand fairy, basically, in, a like, a rock quarry. Um, and it, like, grants them wishes. Um, so it's it's a fantasy adventure children's book. Can I have a sand fairy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm probably getting details wrong. I haven't actually read the book. I've just read a couple of synopses. Um, turns out that that book, while super interesting, doesn't really fit with what we're trying to do episodically. But Edith's name stuck in my head. And so when uh, Christine Lynn... Uh, recommended the story Man Size in Marble to me on Facebook. Man Size in Marble? Man Size in Marble. (laughs) Uh, That was recommended on Facebook. Uh, Also by Edith Nesbitt. Uh, That name was stuck in my brain. And and so this one goes out to to Christine and Craig for first bringing this author to my attention. Yay, and she's our first female author uh, other than Agatha. Agatha. So yay, let's represent, ladies. So Edith Nesbitt was uh, born in England, uh, she's an English author, uh, in August of 1858. Um, She's a poet, she's an author, she published, she's most known actually for her children's books, which she published under the name E. Nesbitt. Um, she wrote and wrote and or collaborated on more than 60 books of children's literature. So really, like, that's where she's most well known. Okay. Uh, she was a follower of the Marxist socialist William Morris. And she and her husband, Hubert Bland, were among the founders of the Fabian Society. The Fabian Society is a British socialist organization whose purpose is to advance the principles of democratic socialism via gradualist and reformist effort democracies rather than by revolutionary overthrow. So Bernie Sanders would have probably been like up in that shit. Would have been up in that (laughs) shit. Um, This organization was founded 136 years ago in 1884. It is still active today. Sweet. 
Yeah. How are they doing, Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, their son, um, uh, Hubert and Edith's son, Fabian, was named after the society they founded. That's awesome. Um, they uh, they also jointly edited... I hope he's like a freaking like, right-wing Republican. <laughs> like, no, I, I, I don't. don't. Don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish that on anybody and anybody also, who is... Also, he's not a Republican, they're British. Yeah, you know that 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 side, right wing, yeah. <laughs> right wing. Um, I, they, no, cut all that out. <laughs> so the husband and wife team also edited the society's journal today. Um, today is the name of the journal. Oh, okay. Not they still edit it today. Damn, they they're would old. Be very old. <laughs> Barely being a democratic socialist um, makes you live for makes a you long live for a long time. ass time. Uh, Nesbitt and Bland also dallied briefly with the Social Democratic Federation, but rejected it because they were too radical and revolutionary. This was an organization that wanted the same things, but was much more um, aggressive and and, and sort of like militant about it. Yeah. yeah. Nesbitt was an active lecturer and a prolific writer on socialism during the 1880s. She also wrote with her husband under the name Fabian Bland, so their son's <laughs> name was their joint pen name. Oh, Although, fun. as her success as a children's author grew, she stopped writing quite so much um, political, socioeconomic stuff and started focusing more and more on children's literature. Oh, it's like, uh, um, like Adam Sandler. <laughs> He went from yeah, being like Yeah, just kind of like older. Adam Sandler. <laughs> he, well, I'm saying he went from being like Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, like beating the shit out of people and like harassing women, to now making movies. He like has straight up said he to, makes movies uncut, that his children can to see. To uncut gems where he's a drug dealer? Well, I mean, now or? they're grown up. But like, look <laughs> back like 10 years ago what he was making. He was making like uh, yeah. grown ups and yeah. like movies that his kids can watch. Yeah. So, yeah, artists do that. They're like, well, now i got to make stuff that my kids can enjoy. Yeah. And then when they grow up, I can go back to making some offensive, political, controversial, yeah. amazing stuff. Edith died relatively young. She was 65. Uh, because she was an avid smoker. Don't smoke, kids. Yeah, I... It's not worth it. Yeah. No matter how cool you look. And you do look cool. No, you don't. <laughs> As someone who has had the occasional cigarette while drinking and has, you know, it happens, but uh, don't smoke. I have never it's been just, a smoker. Yeah. Now, get edibles and do and have all the weed you want in your life. <laughs> don't smoke cigarettes. Yes. Tobacco bad. Uh, so, yeah. So, she, um, I, I believe it was lung cancer, if I remember correctly, but it was definitely something as a result of her Broke smoking. She. She she died at age 65 and left behind her a huge body of work that included her children's literature, her political writings, her poetry, her novels, and her short fiction for adults. And right. I believe that what we're going to read today is one of her short fictions for an adult audience. We're going to find out, um, I guess. But I don't actually know because I have done very little research into the story we're reading. Oh, good. Alright, well then, uh, sit back, little ones, and get ready for a tale. So kids, if you're listening, and I know you are, don't smoke, but also this story might be fucking weird. 
Also, don't say fuck. Fuck. <laughs> Let's start the fire. Let's do that fire. Man Size in Marble by Evelyn Nesbitt. Nope. <laughs> Try again. Edith. Edith. I was like, which one's right? Okay, cut. Don't worry, I'll definitely, definitely edit out you getting the name of the author wrong yes, in is. your first breath of the story. It's not on the thing! <laughs> Man Size in Marble by Edith Nesbitt. Although every word of this, she's British. Although she every word of this story is true as despair, I do not expect people to believe it. I every love these stories. Time. That must have been like the thing of the time. Like I'm gonna set it up and let you know what you're about to read, so you can put it down now if you're not into it. I wonder who the first person to like use that, like, that shtick was. Yeah. I don't know. I want to find out now. They, if they you always, know, people if, like creative writing people at home that have been to school for this and whatnot. If you know, Lauren might know. Um, all my friends from Co. who like, were in the creative writing and theater because they were smart and had a backup in writing. <laughs> um, yeah, if you know, who was the first person to use that... Um, that convention. That convention of da-da-da-da-da. Like, like, I promise this is true, and you're not going to believe me, and you're probably going to say I'm crazy, and you might be right, because I am sitting in the the mental wing of the hospital. But I already told you that, so you continue to read, and it's your fault. All right, yeah. now I'm going to read. It does make it feel very much like a, a um, monologue. Like, it ends up feeling much more personal it's when narrative. it starts that yeah, way. It so sounds that's like cool. someone's talking to us. All right. Man Size in Marble by Edith <laughs> Nesbitt. Although every word of this story is as true as despair, I do not expect people to believe it. Nowadays, a rational explanation is required before belief is possible. Let me then, at once, offer the rational explanation which finds most favor among those who have heard the tale of my life's tragedy. It is held that we are under a delusion, Laura and I, on the 31st of October. Oh, yeah, it's an October story. <laughs> it's a Halloween story. It's a Halloween story. All right, so so begins the, the October. All right. Also, uh, listeners, if you could hear um, quotey fingers around the words rational explanation, <laughs> you're correct. Those were happening. That's a really good bit for an audio medium. I'm an actor. I just quoted. If, if you could hear the quotey fingers around the word actor, <laughs> my, those were also All there. my professors from like conservatory to masters are probably like, oh. <laughs> hey, look at me. I'm an actor. actor. The <laughs> fuck does that mean? <laughs> Laura and I, on that 31st of October, this, this, this accent's rough today, <laughs> whatever, and that this... I'm going to start all this over again in an American accent. Great. Man Size and Marble by Edith Nesbitt. Although every word of this story is as true as despair, I do not expect people to believe it. Nowadays, a rational explanation is required before belief is possible. Let me then at once offer the rational explanation which finds most favorable among those who have heard the tale of my life's tragedy. It is held that we were under a delusion, 
Laura and I, on the 31st of October, and that this supposition places the whole matter on a satisfactory and believable basis. The reader can judge, when he, too, has heard my story, how far this is an explanation, and in what sense it is rational. (laughs) There were three who took part in this, Laura and I, and another man. The other man still lives and can speak to the truth of the least credible part of my story. Wait, are Laura and her dead? Is she writing from the grave? (laughs) Maybe. I never in my life knew what it was to have as much money as I required to supply the most ordinary needs. Good colors, books, and cab fares. Amen, girl. What you get for going to the arts. Damn the arts. Support the arts. Hashtag be an arts hero. And when we were married, we knew quite well that we should only be able to live at all by strict punctuality and attention to business. Oh, women have it hard. I used to paint in those days, and Laura used to write, and we felt sure we could keep the pot at least simmering. I think the narrating character is a man. I think so, too. That's really interesting, because it's a female... Because he said another man. Another man, yeah. Laura and I... And, and another, another man. man. All right. So another in addition to the narrator. I was reading this in, like, the, in the idea that it's a female voice. Whoops. Well, she might have been a woman, but she knew that in 1889 or whenever this story was people written... Wanted people wanted stories by men? Yeah, well, that, like, male protagonists were the the uh or this is a lesbian marriage and way ahead of its time way ahead of its time good for them i know that england made that legal uh earlier than the u.s but i don't think all the way back then uh 1893 1893 all right um so now speaking from a men's point of view with the uh narration i used to paint in those days and laura used to write and we sure felt we could keep the pot at least simmering Living in town was out of the question, so we went to look for a cottage in the country. Yeah, that's right. Can't live in Manhattan. Gotta live in Staten Island. Represent! (laughs) So we went to look for a cottage in the country, which should be at once sanitary and picturesque. So rarely do these two qualities meet in one cottage that our search was for some time quite fruitless. So it's either disgusting, like... Like, as in not, not clean. Unsanitary. And adorable. Or it's, pris- like, pristinely clean, but it's, like, Duh. disgusting and brown. We tried advertisements, but most of the desirable rural residences we did look at proved to be lacking in both essentials. And when a cottage chanced to have drains, it always had stucco as well and was shaped like a tea caddy. <laughs> And if we found a vine or a rose-covered porch, corruption invariably lurked within. Our minds got so befogged by the eloquence of house agents and the rival disadvantages of the fever traps and outages of beauty which we had seen and scorned that I very much doubt whether either of us, on our wedding morning, knew the difference between a house and a haystack. But when we got away from friends and house agents on our honeymoon, our wits grew clear again, and we knew a pretty cottage when at last we saw one. 
It was at Bren Brenzit, not Brexit, <laughs> Brenzit, a little village set on a hill over against the southern marshes. We had gone there from the seaside village where we were staying to see the church, and two fields from the church we found this cottage. It stood quite by itself, about two miles from the village. It was a long, low building with rooms sticking out in unexpected places. There was a bit of stonework, ivy-covered, and moss-grown. <laughs> moss! <laughs> it ties into our story. Uh, Ellen, do you like the moss? Yeah, I like, yeah, I like it. See, Ellen's listening. Yeah, I like oh, yeah. this. It was good. Hold him up to the you microphone. Don't have to hold him up to the microphone. I'm used to being seen when I do my theater, and now no one can see me except you. Yeah, I like the mask. It's really good. <laughs> um, what the hell? Um, <laughs> there was a bit of stonework, ivy covered, and moss grown. Just two rooms, all that was left of a big house that had once stood there, and round this stonework, the house had grown up. Stripped of its roses and jasmine, it would have been hideous. As it stood, it was charming, and after a brief examination, we took it. It was absurdly cheap. <laughs> Something not right with this house. You know right away. Like, uh-oh. The rest of our honeymoon we spent in grubbing about in second-hand shops in a country town, picking up bits of old oak and Chippendale chairs for our furnishing. We wound up with a run-up to town and a visit to Liberty's, and soon the low oak beam lattice window rooms began to be home. I know that it's something completely different, but the title is Man Size and Marble, and you just talked about Chippendale. I, it's like, like, that's where I went. They got their stripper chairs they ready their for stripper their, chairs their cute cottage. And their marble yeah. man pieces. Man pieces. <laughs> There was a jolly old-fashioned garden with green paths and no end of hollyhocks and sunflowers and big lilies. From the window, you could see the marsh pastures and beyond them, the blue, thin line of the sea. Oh my God, I want to live here. <laughs> we were as happy as the summer was glorious and settled down into work sooner than we ourselves expected. I was never tired of sketching the view of the wonderful cloud effect and the open lattice, and Laura would sit at the table and write verses about them, in which I mostly played the part of foreground. I got a tall old peasant woman to do for us. What? Open-minded wife. That's why she needed man size and marble. I'm going to just read that exactly. I read it exactly as it's written. We got a tall old peasant woman to do for us. That is the sentence. I'm guessing they mean housekeep and or like maid or cook or something, but they don't, they don't, they don't qualify that. It's just, I don't, I we don't got think, a tall old peasant woman to do for us. I don't think you should speculate. Oh wait, it gets better. Her face and figure were good. <laughs> Though her cooking was of the homeliest, but she understood about gardening and told us all the old names of the coppics and cornfields and the stories of the smugglers and highwaymen and better still of the things that walked and of the sights which met one in lonely glens of a starlit night. Oh yeah, 100% this is a ghost story. Okay. Yeah, this is straight up a ghost story. And 
that woman might be their third. <laughs> after they... After, and they've got another man coming. And there's another man. Oh. This is... It's a ghost story and it's This freaky. is ghost story erotica. <laughs> Buckle up, Alan. <laughs> the dinosaur. Get ready for... No, some... it's cool. This is my favorite kind of story. I <laughs> knew it. That's why we picked it for you. She was a great comfort to us because Laura hated housekeeping as much as I loved folklore. <laughs> and... <laughs> um, this is full of fabulous sentences. It really is. Because Laura hated housekeeping as much as I loved folklore, and we soon came to leave all the domestic business to Mrs. Dorman and to use her legends in little magazine stories, which brought in a jingling guinea. Oh, so Laura wrote, like, wrote about these, like, folklore stories that, that's, that's fun. And either sold them for money. Or, or... they have a guinea pig, a jingling guinea pig. <laughs> We had three months of married happiness and did not have a single quarrel. One October evening, I had been down to smoke a pipe with the doctor, our only neighbor. That's a good doctor. That's a good neighbor to have. A pleasant young Irish man. Oh, good. It's an Irish doctor. Laura had stayed at home to finish a comic sketch of a village episode for the monthly mar plot. <laughs> the monthly mar plot. That's what it's called. I left her laughing over her own jokes and came in to find her a crumpling heap of pale muslin weeping on the window seat. Oh, shit. What just happened? That's a turnaround. Fuck, I wasn't ready for that. Good heavens, my darling, what's the matter? I cried, taking her in my arms. She leaned her little dark head against my shoulder and went on crying. I had never seen her cry before. We had always been so happy, you see, and I felt for sure some frightful misfortune had happened. What is the matter? Do speak. It's Mrs. Dorman, she sobbed. What has she done? I inquired, immensely relieved. She says she must go before the end of the month, and she says her niece is ill. She's gone down to see her now, but I don't believe that's the reason, because her niece is always ill. I believe someone has been setting her against us her manner was so queer never mind pussy i said <laughs> his nickname for his wife is pussy sure. they're still in the honeymoon stage <laughs> they, i mean this was a different time so that's that's like all that's all on his mind right now <laughs> It's, like, it's okay, pussy. I mean, sweetie. I mean, uh, um, Laura. <laughs> it's okay. Come here. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> Never mind, pussy. I. <laughs> Don't nickname your girlfriend or wife pussy. You can nickname their, mm, but don't nickname them that, because then they feel like they're an object. Or or do, um. Campfire Classics does not put any judgment on what you do in your bedroom. I don't care what you do in your bedroom. Just don't nickname her pussy when you say it in front of people. <laughs> Are well, you all right, pussy? 
or if you're gonna, just know just, you're gonna get looks. Just know you're gonna get looks, and if you're that person, more power to you, man. That's great. Never mind, pussy, I said. Whatever you do, don't cry, or I shall have to cry too to keep you incontinence, and then you'll never respect your man again. Oh, it went from it went from such an equal marriage to this. She dried her eyes obediently on my handkerchief and even smiled faintly. But you see, she went on, it is really serious because these village people are so sheepy and if one won't do a thing, you may be quite sure none of the others will. And I shall have to cook in the dinners and wash up the greasy, hateful plates. And you'll have to carry cans of water about and clean the boots and knives. And we shall never have any time for work or earn any money or anything. We shall, we shall have to work all day and only be able to rest when we are waiting for the kettle to boil. <laughs> I wish if we could afford an assistant or, oh, a, or like a housekeeper... I would love to be able to afford someone to just do like, all that shit. <laughs> do like cook, clean, clean apparently uh, do the laundry, clean the boots, uh, shine the knives, carry the water about. In fairness, I'd also love to be able to afford a place with a garden so that we could have a housekeeper well, whose job was to garden. We just need to not live in New York City. We just need to not live in New York City. <laughs> anyway, I represented to her that even if we had to perform these duties, the day would still present some margin for other toils and recreations. But she refused to see the matter in any but the grayest light. Pessimist, optimist. Yeah. <laughs> she was very unreasonable, my Laura, but I could not have loved her any more if she had been as reasonable as Watley. Who's Waddley? W-H-A-T-E-L-Y. Richard Waddley was an English academic rhetorician. <laughs> rhetorician? I mean, like dealing in rhetoric. rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, logician, philosopher, economist, and theologian All who right. also served as a reforming Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin. He was a leading broad churchman, a prolific and combative author over a wide range of topics, a flamboyant character, and one of the first reviewers to recognize the talents of Jane Austen. Well, uh, I love that. Hell yeah. So check so that out. She's given uh the uh Nesbitt's giving a shout out to Watley who like promoted who gave a shout out to female Jane Austen. writers. Love that. Love that deep dive. That was a deep cut right there. That was good. That that was... That's great. So as reasonable as Watley. I'll speak with Mrs. Dorman when she comes back and see if I can't come to terms with her, I said. Perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. <laughs> That's what he says. Perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. I'll see what I can do about that. Wait, She wait. is older, but she has a nice body. She, she says, perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. It'll be all right. Let's walk up to the church. <laughs> I'm guessing that means I, perhaps she wants a raise in her salary. 
I assume. But rise in her screw is a very strange way to put that that I've never heard. <laughs> Perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. It will be all right. Let's walk up to the church. The church was a large and lonely one, and we loved to go there, especially upon bright nights. The path skirted a wood, cut through it once, and ran along the crest of the hill through two meadows and round the churchyard wall, over which the old yews loomed in black masses of shadow. This path, which was partly paved, was called the bear, the bear balk. The beer balk? It's B-E-E. It's B-I-E-R dash B-A-L-K. Beerbalk. A church road. Oh. <laughs> was partly paved. Was A church the... road for funerals. Oh, okay. The beer is... The, yeah, the beer balk. Yeah. It was called the beer balk, for it had been the way of which the corpses had been carried to burial. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes you just gotta keep, keep reading. reading. Moral of the story. Uh, had been Just carried to burial. Reading. Just, Just keep, keep reading. reading. <laughs> the churchyard was richly... Yeah, I like that movie. Just keep reading. The churchyard was richly tread and was shaded by great elms which stood just outside the stretched where their majestic arms in benediction over the happy dead. So now they're in a freaking graveyard. A large low porch let one into the building by a Norman doorway and a heavy oak door studded with iron. Inside, the arches rose into darkness, and between them, the reticulated windows which stood out white in the moonlight. In the chan chancel, that's, I know that's a church thingy, the chancel, it's like, it's not up where they do the service. We're covering Catholic here. Yes, the part of the church near the altar, reserved for the clergy and choir, and typically separated from the nave by steps or a screen. So hey. yeah, it's that part. You in hear the that, front. mom and dad? I remember some of that Catholic stuff. <laughs> Still recovering. In the chancel, the windows were of rich glass, which showed in faint light their noble coloring and made the black oak of their choir pews hardly more solid than the shadows. But on each side of the altar lay a gray marble figure of a knight in full plate armor lying upon a low slab, with hands held up in everlasting prayer. And these figures, oddly enough, were always to be seen if, they were, if there was any glimmer of light in the church. So they could always be seen if there was if, if it was wasn't light. pitch black. Uh, their names were lost, but the peasants told of them. The peasants. I love that they keep referring to people as peasants. Like <laughs> they're like we're kind of poor artists, but they still have a house and a we, servant. We're poor artists, but at least we're not peasants. Not the peasants. At least we don't have to do Work. manual labor. I want to cook my dinner. Oh, darling, the peasants are out doing the farming peasants again. Peasants are telling rumors again. Come, come, read, read me your comic strip. <laughs> I, I'll write a story and put it in the monthly Marpel or whatever it was called. Oh, what they called the Marple. Oh, dear, the peasants are revolting. <laughs> oh, so what's tired. what's the bit? Um. Oh, yes, they've always been revolting, but now they're rebelling. 
what's that from? I don't remember, but it's delightful wordplay. Yeah. I would I would love to claim that, but I don't... Th- no, I can't. It's in the movie Dragonheart. There it is. <laughs> All right. Throwback. Um, blah, blah, blah. But the peasants told of them that they had been fierce and wicked men, martyrs by land and sea, who had been the scourge of their time and had been guilty of deeds so foul that the house they had lived in the big house, by the way, that had stood on the site of our cottage, had been stricken by lightning and the vengeance of heaven. We've played this game before. Wow. That is dark as hell. It is, but it's also, that's what happened in the the Lovecraft story. Yeah. Yeah. The house was struck by lightning. Yep. And the kid wanted to sleep in the grave. (laughs) All right. Well, here we go. But for all that, the gold of their heirs had bought them a place in the church. Looking at the bad, hard faces reproduced in the marble, the story was easily believed. The church looked at its best and weirdest on the night, for the shadows of the yew trees fell upon the windows upon the floor of the nave and touched the pillars with tattered shade. We sat down together without speaking and watched the solemn beauty of the old church with some of that awe which was inspired which inspired its earlier builders we walked to the chancel and looked at the sleeping warriors then we rested some time on the stone seat in the porch looking out over the stretch of quiet moonlit meadows feeling in every fiber of our being the peace of the night and of our happy love and came away at last with the sense that even scrubbing and black leading were but troubles at their worst. (laughs) We took a stroll to the church and went, I guess we have it pretty good. I guess we can do some housework. You know, I guess that's that's a good thing of religion. Because because at least we're not dead, buried in the church, and having the peasants talk smack about us all the time. The wife's super worried that the peasants are going to talk smack about them, though, because she thinks Mrs. Dorman's, like, spreading rumors. Mrs. Dorman had come back from the village, and I at once invited her to uh, tete-a-tete. <laughs> that means head-to-head, if you don't know. Now... That's not what it means on porn sites... What? I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, someone who is not on a work computer, Google porn tete-a-tete. <laughs> I don't know what that what that would come. I was trying to come up. I'm sorry. I was trying to come up with porn hub, and I couldn't remember the word hub, so I went porn sites. Porn, porn tete-a-tete. Now, Mrs. Dorman, I said, when I had got her into my painting room. What's all this about you not staying with us? I should be glad to get away, sir, before the end of the month, she answered with her unusual placid dignity. With her usual placid dignity. Have you any fault to find, Mrs. Dorman? None at all, sir. You and your lady have always been most kind, I'm sure. Well, what is it? Are your wages not high enough? No, sirs, I get quite enough. Then why not stay? I'd rather not, with some hesitation. My niece is ill. But your niece has been ill ever since she came. No answer. There was a long and awkward silence. I broke it. 
Can't you stay for another month? I asked. No, sir. I'm bound to go by Thursday. And this was Monday. Well, I must say, I think you might have let us know before. There's no time now to get anyone else, and your mistress is not fit to do heavy housework. Can't you stay till next week? I might be able to come back next week. I was now convinced that all she wanted was a brief holiday, which we should have been willing enough to ha have let her have as soon as we could get a substitute. But why must you go this week, I persisted. Come, out with it. Mrs. Dorman drew the little shawl, which she always wore, tightly across her bosom, as though she were cold. Then she said, with a sort of effort, They say, sir, as this was a big house in Catholic times, and there were many deeds done here. The nature of the deeds might be vaguely inferred from the inflection of Mrs. Dorman's voice, which was enough to make one's blood run cold. I was glad that Laura was not in the room. She was always nervous, as highly strung natures are, and I felt that these tales about her house told by this old peasant woman with her impressive manner and contagious credulity that's the word, with her impressive manner and contagious credulity, might have made our home less dear to my wife. Tell me all about them, Mrs. Dorman, I said. You needn't mind about telling me. I'm not like the young people who make fun of such things. <laughs> this guy's got some, he does have, uh, this narrator has some, uh, some serious judgment. <laughs> like, he's like, Nervous women are always like this, and young people are always doing this, and the peasants. Well, let me tell you about the peasants. It must be nice to be a rich white guy in he, the 1890s. He's middle-class middle class white guy in the 1890s. Yeah, I suppose. Not rich white guy, but middle-class... Yeah, able to have Middle-class white guy artist. Yeah. Tell me about the Mrs. Dorman, blah, 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 which was partly true. <laughs> Okay, I'm not like the young people who make fun of such things. Which was partly true. Well, sir, she sank her voice. You may have seen in the church, beside the altar, two shapes. You mean the effigies of the knights in armor, I said cheerfully. I mean them two bodies, drawed out man's size in marble. She said the title of the story. If you at home right now are not in like theater or filmmaking or whatnot, whenever the title comes up in the script, it's like the most funny thing to any rehearsal process. It's like, there it is. It's like even in a like drama, like all my sons, like Arthur Miller. Like when he's, they were all my sons. It's like, oh man, like. Read that line again, and when you say the name of the story, I'm going to edit in some music. Okay, great. To celebrate the appearance of the title. Great. I mean them two bodies, drawed out, man-sized in marble. She returned, and I had admit that her description was a thousand times more graphic than mine, to say nothing of a certain weird force and uncanniness about the phrase, drawed out, man-size and marble. Twice in one paragraph! They do say, 
as on All Saints Eve. Oh, it's the Halloween. They do say, as on All Saints Eve, them two bodies sits up on their slabs and gets off of them and then walks down the aisle in their marble. It's like naked. <laughs> it's in quotes. It's in quotes. Another good phrase, Mrs. Dorman. And as the church clock strikes 11, they walks down the church door and over the graves and along the beer balk as if it's a wet night, there's the marks of their feet in the morning. And where do they go, I asked, rather fascinated. That comes back here to their homes, sir, and if anyone meets them, well then, I asked. But no, not another word could I get from her, save that her niece was ill and she must go. After that I had heard I scorned to discuss the niece, and tried to get from Mrs. Dorman more details of the legend. I could get nothing but warnings. Whatever you do, sir, lock the door early on All Saints' Eve, and make the cross sign over the doorstep and on the windows. But has anyone ever seen these things? I persisted. That's not for me to say. I know what I know, sir. Well, who was here last year? No one, sir. The lady as owned the house only stayed here in the summer, and she always went to London a full month afore the night. And I'm sorry to inconvenience you and your lady, but my niece is ill, and I must go on Thursday. I could have shaken her for her absurd reiteration of that obvious fiction after she had told me her real reasons. She was determined to go, nor could our united entreaties move her in the least. I did not tell Laura the legend of the shapes that walked in their marble, partly because a legend concerning our house might perhaps trouble my wife, and partly, I think, from some more occult reason. This was not quite the same to me as any other story, and I did not want to talk about it till the day was over. I had very soon ceased to think of the legend, however. I was painting a portrait of Laura against the lattice window, and I could not think of much else. I had got a splendid background of yellow and gray sunset, and was working away with enthusiasm on her face. On Thursday, Mrs. Dorman went. She relented at parting, so far as to say, "'Don't you put yourself about too much, ma'am, and if there's any little thing I can do next week, I'm sure I shan't mind.' from which I inferred that she wished to come back to us after Halloween. Up to the last, she adhered to the fiction of the niece with the touching fidelity. Thursday passed off pretty well. Laura showed marked ability in the matter of steak and potatoes. <laughs> if you get a steak and potatoes, what else do you need? I mean, like, Let's be real. legit. Like, that's pretty much what British people eat. Steak and potatoes, <laughs> add, um asparagus or, sort of greenery, or yeah. green beans or, or broccoli or something and you're yeah. pff, that's fine yeah matter of steak and potatoes and i confess that my knives and the plates which i insisted upon washing were better done than i had dared to expect the man washed his first plate i'm so proud of him and <laughs> and, and she, apparently did it well and apparently it was beautiful friday came it is about what happened on that friday that is written I want... Uh-oh. <laughs> Friday came. Okay. 
That's what this story is really about. Yeah. All of this other All shit, other just shit ignore it. Just, you know, just letting you know what's up. I wonder if I should have believed it if anyone had told it to me. I will write the story of it as quickly and plainly as I can. I haven't been quick and plain thus far, no, but... You gotta, like, like, build it up. Everything that happened on that day is burnt into my brain. I shall not forget anything or leave anything out. I got up early, I remember, and lighted the kitchen fire, and had just achieved a smoky success when my little wife came running down, as sunny and sweet as the clear October morning itself. We prepared breakfast together and found it very good fun. <laughs> it is fun to cook. Uh, the housework was done soon, and we, and when brushes and brooms and pails were quiet again, the house was still indeed. It is wonderful what a difference one makes in a house. We really missed Mrs. Dorman quite. A, uh, we really missed Mrs. Dorman quite apart from considerations concerning pots and pans. <laughs> We spent the day in dusting our books and putting them straight and dined gaily on cold steak and coffee. That's an interesting... <laughs> cold steak and coffee? It's like steak sandwich and coffee. If they made eggs, they could have had steak and eggs for breakfast with coffee, yeah. and that would have been yeah. banging. Yeah. Laura, yeah, I like steak and eggs. Steak and eggs is really tasty, huh? Good. Alan, you're, you're a vegetarian. Omnivore. That's what I meant. An omnivore. You're a vegetarian. Omnivore. Nope. We're omnivores. Omnivores eat everything. Are they? No, they're not. Uh, I was like, what? <laughs> no, most of my people aren't omnivores, but I'm special. Huh? <laughs> I hate everything that's happening. <laughs> Demon dinosaur. Laura was, if possible, brighter and gayer and sweeter than usual, and I began to think that a little domestic toil was really good for her. Oh, shit. <laughs> this is how the 50s happened. <laughs> we had never been so merry since we were married, and the walk we had that afternoon was, I think, the happiest time of all my life. When we had watched the deep scarlet clouds slowly pale into leaden gray against a pale green sky and saw the white mists curl up along the hedgerows in the distance marsh in the distant marsh we came back to the house silently hand in hand you are sad my darling i said half jesting as we sat down together in our little parlor I expected a disclaimer for my own silence had been the silence to complete happiness. To my surprise, she said, Yes, I think I am sad. Or rather, I am, an un I am uneasy. I don't think I'm very well. I had shivered three or four times since we came in, and it's not cold, is it? No, I said, and hoped it was not a chill caught from the treacherous mist that rolled up from the marshes in the dying light. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. No, she said. She did not think so. Then, after a silence, she spoke suddenly. Do you ever have presentiments of evil? Oh, shit. That's never a good sentence to say to someone after a particular long silence. Nope. No. That's bad news. Yeah. No, I said, smiling. And I shouldn't believe in them if I had. I do, she went on. The night my father died, I knew it, though he was right away in the north of Scotland. 
I did not answer in words. She sat looking at the fire for some time in silence, gently stroking my hand. At last, she sprang up, came behind me, and, drawing my head back, kissed me. There, it's over now, she said. What a baby I am. Come, light the candles, and we'll have some of these new Rubenstein duets. <laughs> and we spent a happy hour or two at the piano. Whoa. Oh, God, they play piano, too? Yeah, I mean, this house sounds like our house. That's um, what we did this morning. This morning, we sang the entire score of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. At about half past ten, I began to long for the goodnight pipe, but Laura looked so white that I felt it would be brutal for me to fill our sitting room with the fumes of strong Cavendish. Oh, no, he's going to go outside. He's going to unlock the doors. Dumb. Don't do it, my dude. Don't smoke. What did we just say? Don't, Don't smoke. Smoking kills. Smoking kills. Here we go. Strong Cavendish. I'll take my pipe outside, I said. No. Let me come too. No, sweetheart. Not tonight. You're much too tired. I shan't be long. Get to bed, or I shall have an invalid to nurse tomorrow as well as the boots to clean. I kissed her and was turning to go when she flung her arms around my neck and held me as if she'd never let me go again. I stroked her hair. Come, pussy, you're overtired. The housework has been too much for you. <laughs> she loosened her clasp a little and drew a deep breath, just like the one you just took. <laughs> Does it make it harder for a pussy to come if it's overtired? <laughs> but a ching <laughs> Oh no! Sorry, mom and dad. And <laughs> but really, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry, anyone. I'm not sorry either. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, then you're welcome. She loosened her clasp a little and drew a deep breath. No, I. We've been very happy today, Jack. Oh, we finally know his name, Jack. We've been very happy today. Of course, Jack. his name's fucking John. Jack. Well, Jack, as Oscar Wilde points out oh, yes, in, that's right. in um, Importance, Importance of Being, being Earnest, Earnest, Jack is a famous domesticity of John. That's so if your name is Jack, odds are your name is actually name John. Is John. Of course, this dude's name is John. <laughs> We've been very happy today, Jack, haven't we? Don't stay out too long. I won't, my dearie. I strolled out the front door, leaving it unlatched like a fucking moron. What did the lady tell him? Sorry. I... That's, that's interesting writing for 1893. <laughs> when an old lady peasant tells you to lock the damn doors on Halloween, you lock the damn doors on Halloween. Not for nothing, but I lock the damn doors on Halloween All always. Because I don't want trick-or-treaters. Because I don't like children. <laughs> what I do, it's, a, it's actually a really good game. What I do is I lock the doors, and then I sit in a window that looks over the front door, and I, um, I uh, load Jolly Ranchers into an air rifle. This is all the worst <laughs> lie ever because we don't have a front door. We live in an apartment building. And I have and never in my no life owned an air rifle. I strolled out the front door, leaving it unlatched. What a night it was. The jagged masses of heavy, dark cloud were rolling at intervals from horizon to horizon, and thin white breeze covered the stars. Through all the rush of the cloud river, the moon swam, breasting the waves and disappearing again in the darkness. 
When now and again her light reached the woodlands, they seemed to be slowly and noisily waving in time to the swing of the clouds above them. There was a strange gray light over the earth. The fields had the shadowy bloom over them, which only comes from the marriage of dew and moonshine, or frost and starlight. I walked up and down, drinking in the beauty of the quiet earth and the changing sky. The night was absolutely silent. Nothing seemed to be abroad. There was no scurrying of rabbits, no twitter of the half-asleep birds. And though the clouds went sailing across the sky, the wind that drove them never came low enough to rustle the dead leaves in the woodland paths. Across the meadows, I could see the church tower standing out black and gray against the sky. I walked there, thinking over our three months of happiness. Why? Didn't he just say he's going to walk outside for a second, smoke his pipe, and get the hell back inside? Lies. Now he's walking to the demon church. Well... He's not just going to stand outside while he smokes. He's going to meander what? while he smokes. But he said, I will be back in a second. You know, like He was like, I'll be back in... Like, don't worry about it. Yes, but he's a liar. He lies. Um, the night was... Uh, across the meadows, I could see the church tower standing out black and gray against the sky. I walked there thinking over our three months of happiness and of my wife, her dear eyes, her loving ways. She going to die. This woman, she gonna die. He gonna get back to the house. She did, cause he left her there. Cause he left her alone. Yep. Cause he left her alone with the with door the, unlocked. With the door unlocked. Oh my little girl, my own little girl. What a vision came then of a long, glad life for you and me together. I heard a bell beat from the church. Eleven already. I turned to go in, but the night held me. I could not go back into our little warm room yet. I would go up to the church. I felt vaguely that it would be good to carry my love and thankfulness to the sanctuary whither so many loads of sorrow and gladness had been borne by the men and women of the dead years. I looked at the low window as I went by. Laura was half lying on her chair in front of the fire. I could not see her face, only her little head showed dark against the pale blue wall. She was quite still, asleep no doubt. My heart reached out to her as I went on. There must be a God, I thought, and a God who was good. How otherwise could anything so sweet and dear ha have ever been imagined? Oh, he loves her so much. So sweet. I walked slowly along the edge of the wood. A sound broke the stillness of the night. It was a rustling in the wood. I stopped and listened. The sound stopped, too. I went on, and now distinctly heard another step than mine answer mine like an echo. It was a poacher or a wood-stealer, most likely, for these were not unknown in our Arcadian neighborhood. But whoever it was, he was a fool not to step more lightly. I turned into the wood, and now the footsteps seemed to come from the path I had just left. It must be an echo, I thought. The wood looked perfect in the moonlight. The large dying ferns and the brushwood showed where, through thinning foliage, the pale light came down. The tree trunks stood like gothic columns all around me. They reminded me of the church, and I turned into the beer balk and passed through the corpse gate between the graves to the low porch. I paused for a moment on the stone seat where Laura and I had watched the fading landscape. Then I noticed 
the door of the church was open, and I blamed myself for having left it unlatched the other night. Nope. We were the only people who ever cared to come to the church except on Sundays, and I was vexed to think that through our carelessness the damp autumn airs had had a chance of getting in and injuring the old fabric. I went in. It will seem strange, perhaps, that I should have gone halfway up the aisle before I remembered, with a sudden chill, followed by a sudden rush of self-contempt, that this was the very day and hour when, according to tradition, the shapes drawed out, man-size and marble, began to walk. Yes, it is strange that you took that long to remember, because your wife literally said like five minutes ago... That she had a forbearing she had a, 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 a presentiment of, of death, evil. Of death. Like, the last time she felt it was when her father died when he was in Scotland. Oh, Alan doesn't like you very much right now. Jack, John, you fucked up. All right. Having thus remembered the legend and remembered it with a shiver of which I was ashamed, I could not do otherwise than walk up towards the altar just to look at the figures. As I said to myself, really, what I wanted was to assure myself first that I did not believe the legend and secondly, that it was not true. I was rather glad that I had come. I thought now I could tell Mrs. Dorman how vain her fancies were and how peacefully the marble figures slept on through the ghastly hour. With my hands in my pockets, I passed up the aisle. In the gray, dim light, the eastern end of the church looked larger than usual, and the arches above the two tombs looked larger, too. The moon came out and showed me the reason. I stopped short. My heart gave a leap that nearly choked me and then sank sickeningly. The bodies drawn out man-size were gone and their marble slabs lay wide and bare in the vague moonlight that slanted through the east window. Oh shit, were they really gone? Or was I mad? Clenching my nerves, I stooped and passed my hand over the smooth slabs and felt their flat, unbroken surface. Had someone taken the things away? Was it some vile, practical joke? I would make sure anyway. In an instant, I had made a torch of newspaper, which happened to be in my pocket, and lighting it held it above my head. Its yellow glare illuminated the dark arches and those slabs. The figures were gone, and I was alone in the church. Or was I alone? What behind you? And then, and then a horror seized me. A horror, not a horror. <laughs> I tried to say horror. And then a horror seized me. I wasn't alone. It was alone. Mrs. Dorman. And then a horror seized me, a horror indefinable and indescribable, an overwhelming certainty of supreme and accomplished calamity. I flung down the torch and tore along the aisle and out through the porch, biting my lips as I ran to keep myself from shrieking aloud. Oh, was I mad? Or what was this that possessed me? I leaped the churchyard wall and took the straight cut across the fields, led by the light from our windows. Just as I got over the first stile, a dark figure seemed to spring out of the ground. Mad still with the certainty of misfortune, I made for the thing that stood in my path, sh path shouting, Get out of the way, can't you? 
but my push met with a more vigorous resistance than I had expected. My arms were caught just above the elbows and held in a vice, and the raw-boned Irish doctor actually shook me. (laughs) The neighbor. The neighbor is the other man. Yep. Would ye, he cried in his own unmistakable accents, would ye then? Let me go, you fool, I gasped. The marble figures have gone from the church. I tell you, they've gone. He broke into a ringing laugh. I'll have to give ye a draft tomorrow, I see. You've been smoking too much and listening to old wives' tales. (laughs) I can do this because I'm Irish. (laughs) Oh, man. I tell you, I've seen the bare slabs. Well, come back with me. I'm going up to old Palmer's. His daughter's ill. We'll look at the church and let me see the bare slabs. You go if you like, I said, a little less frantic for his laughter. I'm going home to my wife. Rubbish, man, said he. Do you think I'll permit that? Are you ye to go saying all your life that you'd be solid, you'd seen solid marble endowed with vitality? And me to go all me life saying you were a coward? No, sir, ye shan't do it. The night air, a human voice, and I think all the physical contact with this six feet solid common sense brought me back a little to my ordinary self. And the word coward was a mental shower bath. (laughs) Come on then, I said sullenly. Perhaps you're right. He still had my arm tightly. We got over the stile and back to the church. All was still as death. The place smelt very damp and earthly. We walked up the aisle. I am not ashamed to confess that I shut my eyes. I knew the figures were not there. I heard Kelly strike a match. Of course, his last name's Kelly. Or first name. Here they are, you see, right enough. You've been dreaming or drinking, asking your pardon for the imputation. I opened my eyes. By Kelly's inspiring Vesta, I saw two shapes lying in their marble on their slabs. I drew a deep breath and caught his hand. I am awfully indebted to you, I said. It must have been some trick of the light, or I must have been working rather hard. Perhaps that's it. Do you know I was quite convinced they were gone? I'm aware of that, he answered rather grimly. Ye have to be careful of that brain of yours, me friend, I assure ye. He was leaning over and looking at the right-hand figure, whose stony face had the most villainous and deadly in expression. By Jove, he said, something has been afoot here. This hand is broken. Oh my God. And so it was. Laura fought back. I was certain that it had been perfect the last time Laura and I had been here. Perhaps someone had tried to remove them, said the young doctor. That won't account for my impression, I objective. Too much paint and tobacco will account for that well enough. Come along, I said, or my wife will be getting anxious. You'll come in and uh, have a drop of whiskey and drink confusion to ghosts or in a better sense of me. I ought to go to Palmer's, but it's so late now. I I'd best leave it till morning, he replied. I had kept up at the Union, and we'd had to see a lot of people since. All right, I'll come back with ye. 
I think he fancied I needed him much more than the Palmer's girl. So discussing how such an illusion could have been possible, the deducing from this experience large generalities concerning ghostly apparitions, we walked up to our cottage. We saw as we walked up the garden path the bright light streaming out the front door and presently saw the parlor door was open. Had she gone out? Come in, I said, and Dr. Kelly followed me into the parlor. It was all ablaze with candles, not only the wax one, but at least a dozen guttering, glaring tallow dips, stuck in vases and ornaments in unlikely places. Light, I knew, was Laura's remedy for nervousness, poor child. Why had I left her, brute that I was? Yeah, dick. We glanced Don't around smoke. the room. Yep. We glanced around the room, and at first we did not see her. The window was open, and the draft set all the candles flaring one way. Her chair was empty, and her handkerchief and book lay on the floor. I turned to the window. There, in the recess of the window, I saw her. Oh, my child, my love, had she gone to that window to watch for me? And what had come into the room behind her? To what had she turned with that look of frantic fear and horror? Oh, my little one, had she thought that it was I whose step she heard and turned to meet? What? She had fallen back across the table in the window, and her body lay half on it and half on the window seat, and her head hung down over the table, the brown hair loosened and fallen to the carpet. Her lips were drawn back, and her eyes wide, wide open. They saw nothing now. What had they seen last? The doctor moved towards her, but I pushed him aside and sprang to her, caught her in my arms and cried, It's all right, Laura. I've got you safe, wifey. She fell into my arms in a heap. I clasped her and kissed her and called her by all her pet names, but I think I knew all the time that she was dead. Her hands were tightly clenched. In one of them, she held something fast. When I was quite sure that she was dead, and that nothing mattered at all anymore, I let him open her hand to see what she held. It was a gray marble finger. That's the end. <laughs> Holy oh, shit! No! Oh my god! Gross! <laughs> Dude, you screwed up. Oh my god, the old lady told you just lock the doors. Don't smoke. That is the moral of this story. It's like the most... It's like seriously. The, it is seriously like the uh, very long commercial for anti-smoking. Like this, those commercials in the 90s. This is your brain on drugs. Like this was like, don't smoke or your wife will get killed by a demon. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> it's October. Does this one actually come out in October, or is, is it, it like the last day of September? It might be the end of September. I think it's the sec second to last day. So, happy early Halloween, everybody! <laughs> yeah, as you're listening to this, it is roughly one month or less until Halloween. Yeah! It's spooky time. So that's that's a good way to um to start off start the Halloween season. Yeah, it's 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 a spark of Halloween. Yay, that was good. I like her. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a cool story. Yeah. Thank you Craig for recommending Edith Nesbitt Craig, and thank you Craig who is a patron. So become a patron. 
<laughs> and thank you, Christine Lynn, for uh, recommending that story. Um, that's yeah, that was that was cool. Thank you, Christine. That was really good. I like that one a lot. I'm on. I'm and on board. I'm all about. I'm all about a uh, uh, some female authors up in this. So if you enjoyed this, as always, feel free to uh, to to like us to like us and follow, follow us, the thing subscribe. and recommend to other friends. If you enjoyed this and you want more stories like this, please do uh, shoot us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or go to our website, campfireclassicspodcast.com, and leave us a recommendation of stories like this that you would like to hear because those are all super awesome things. You can also uh, become patrons on Patreon. But really, if you enjoyed this... Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, The Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> I agreed. Uh, and, it so ends, and it ends with Gonzo, who narrates it, saying, if you like this, you should read the book. Oh, uh, yeah. So I kind of feel like that's, that's where I am on this. We're like, this was a cool-ass story. Yeah. If you enjoyed this... Go track down other stories by Edith Nesbitt and, and then read them. And when you read them, if they're short, um, send them our way so we can read them out loud. Tons of them are available for free online through things like Project Gutenberg, which is actually where we've run across yeah. a lot of our stories. Yeah. And a lot of her books are even available for free on Kindle because a lot of stuff that's in public domain you can get for free on Kindle. Um, so read more. Because that's a big part of what we're doing is just reading more. Yeah. And uh, share us with a friend this week if you like if you like what you've been hearing. Um, the best way for us to grow is to uh, is to get out there. Yeah. We also I uh, should have announced we won a prize this week. I know that we're, we're, we're stretching on here, but we did win a prize this week uh, through uh, podcast movement. Um, which I will now tag this episode in. Uh, we won a plus pass to attend the Podcast Movement Virtual Convention for podcasts. So this is our 15th episode, and uh, we're really excited to attend this um, virtually because we want to learn how to reach more of you. And right now, what we've been told is that's from you sharing it with people. So... Share it with your friends and loved ones, and uh, in about a month, we're going to attend that conference, and we'll have some more fun things yeah. to do for y'all. But thank you, Podcast Movement, and our host, Podbean, for offering that that uh, trivia win for us. Yeah. So Yeah, that was great. Yay. So, I guess that's it. That was creepy. That's a good one. Yeah. Now, now I'm, uh, I'm a little creeped out, and I want to eat some dinner. Oh, yeah. We should eat food. Yeah, I like food. Great. Uh, so thanks for joining us. I have been Ken Sandberg. And I have been Heather Michelle Waller. And I have been Alan the Dinosaur. Alan the Brontosaurus. Uh, and this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs>